Question 79, Part 2, Assuma Theologica, Pars Primus, On Man. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Larry Wilson. Summa Theologica Pars Prima on Man by St. Thomas Aquinas Translated by the Fathers of the English Dominican Province Question 79 of the Intellectual Powers, Part 2 Seventh Article Question 79, Article 7 Whether the intellectual memory is a power distinct from the intellect? Objection 1 it would seem that the intellectual memory is distinct from the intellect. For Augustine, on the Trinity 10.11, assigns to the soul memory, understanding, and will. But it is clear that the memory is a distinct power from the will. Therefore, it is also distinct from the intellect. Objection 2. Further, the reason of distinction among the powers in the sensitive part is the same as in the intellectual part but memory in the sensitive part is distinct from sense, as we have said, question 78, article 4. Therefore, memory in the intellectual part is distinct from the intellect. Objection 3. Further, according to Augustine, on the Trinity 10, 11, and 11, 7, memory, understanding, and will are equal to one another, and one flows from the other. But this could not be if memory and intellect were the same power. Therefore, they are not the same power. On the contrary, from its nature, the memory is the treasury or storehouse of species. But the philosopher, on the soul three, attributes this to the intellects, as we have said, Article 6, 1. Therefore, the memory is not another power from the intellect. I answer that. As has been said above, question 77, article 3, the powers of the soul are distinguished by the different formal aspects of their objects. Since each power is defined in reference to that thing to which it is directed and which is its object. It has also been said above, question 59, article 4, that if any power by its nature be directed to an object according to the common ratio of the object, that power will not be differentiated according to the individual differences of that object. Just as the power of sight, which regards its object under the common ratio of color, is not differentiated by differences of black and white. Now the intellect regards its object under the common ratio of being, since the passive intellect is that in which all are in potentiality. Wherefore, the passive intellect is not differentiated by any difference of being. Nevertheless, there is a distinction between the power of the active intellect and of the passive intellect. Because, as regards the same object, the active power which makes the object to be an act must be distinct from the passive power which is moved by the object existing in act. Thus, the active power is compared to its object as a being in act is to a being in potentiality, whereas the passive power, on the contrary, is compared to its object as being in potentiality is to a being in act. Therefore, there can be no other difference of powers in the intellect, 
but that of passive and active. Wherefore, it is clear that memory is not a distinct power from the intellect, for it belongs to the nature of a passive power to retain as well as to receive. Reply Objection 1. Although it is said, three sentences, D1, that memory, intellect, and will are three powers, this is not in accordance with the meaning of Augustine, who says expressly, on the Trinity 14, that if we take memory, intelligence, and will as always present in the soul, whether we actually attend to them or not, they seem to pertain to the memory only. And by intelligence, I mean that by which we understand when actually thinking. And by will, I mean that love or affection which unites the child and his parent. Wherefore, it is clear that Augustine does not take the above three for three powers, but by memory he understands the soul's habit of retention, by intelligence the act of the intellect, and by will the act of the will. Reply Objection 2. Past and present may differentiate the sensitive powers, but not the intellectual powers, for the reason given above. Reply Objection 3. Intelligence arises from memory, as act from habit, and in this way it is equal to it, but not as a power to a power. Eighth Article, Question 79, Article 8 whether the reason is distinct from the intellect. Objection 1. It would seem that the reason is a distinct power from the intellect, for it is stated in De Spiritu et Anima that when we wish to rise from lower things to higher, first the sense comes to our aid, then imagination, then reason, then the intellect. Therefore the reason is distinct from the intellect as imagination is from sense. Objection 2. Further, Boethius says, on Consolation 4.6, that intellect is compared to reason, as eternity to time. But it does not belong to the same power to be in eternity and to be in time. Therefore, reason and intellect are not the same power. Objection 3. Further, man has intellect in common with the angels, and sense in common with the brutes. But reason, which is proper to man, whence he is called a rational animal, is a power distinct from sense. Therefore is it equally true to say that it is distinct from the intellect, which properly belongs to the angel, whence they are called intellectual. On the contrary, Augustine says, Genesis Adlet 3.20, that in which man excels irrational animals is reason, or mind, or intelligence, or whatever appropriate name we like to give it. Therefore, reason, intellect, and mind are one power. I answer that reason and intellect in man cannot be distinct powers. We shall understand this clearly if we consider their respective actions. For to understand is simply to apprehend intelligible truth. And to reason is to advance from one thing understood to another, so as to know an intelligible truth. And therefore angels, who according to their nature possess perfect knowledge of intelligible truth, have no need to advance from one thing to another, but apprehend the truth simply and without mental discussion, as Dionysius says, Divine Name 7. 
but man arrives at the knowledge of intelligible truth by advancing from one thing to another, and therefore he is called rational. Reasoning, therefore, is compared to understanding as movement is to rest, or acquisition to possession, of which one belongs to the perfect, the other to the imperfect. And since movement always proceeds from something immovable, and ends in something at rest, hence it is that human reasoning, by way of inquiry and discovery, advances from certain things simply understood, namely the first principles, and again by way of judgment returns by analysis to first principles, in the light of which it examines what it has found. Now it is clear that rest and movement are not to be referred to different powers, but to one and the same, even in natural things, since by the same nature a thing is moved towards a certain place and rests in that place. Much more, therefore, by the same power do we understand and reason. And so it is clear that in man reason and intellect are the same power. Reply Objection 1. That enumeration is made according to the order of actions, not according to the distinction of powers. Moreover, that book is not of great authority. Reply Objection 2. The answer is clear from what we have said, for eternity is compared to time as immovable to movable, and thus Boethius compared the intellect to eternity and reason to time. Reply Objection 3. Other animals are so much lower than man that they cannot attain to the knowledge of truth which reason seeks. But man attains, although imperfectly, to the knowledge of intelligible truth, which angels know. Therefore, in the angels, the power of knowledge is not of a different genus from that which is in human reason, but is compared to it as the perfect to the imperfect. Ninth article. Question 79, article 9. Whether the higher and lower reason are distinct powers. Objection 1. It would seem that the higher and lower reason are distinct powers. For Augustine says, on the Trinity 7, 4, and 7, that the image of the Trinity is in the higher part of the reason, and not in the lower. But the parts of the soul are its powers. Therefore the higher and lower reason are two powers. Objection 2. Further, nothing flows from itself. Now the lower reason flows from the higher, and is ruled and directed by it. Therefore the higher reason is another power from the lower. Objection 3. Further, the philosopher says, Ethics 6, 1, that the scientific part of the soul, by which the soul knows necessary things, is another principle, and another part from the opinionative, and reasoning part, by which it knows contingent things. And he proves this from the principle that for those things which are generically different, generically different parts of the soul are ordained. Now contingent and necessary are generically different as corruptible and incorruptible. Since, therefore, necessary is the same as eternal, and temporal the same as contingent, it seems that what the philosopher calls the scientific part must be the same as the higher reason, which, according to Augustine, on the Trinity 7-7, is intent on the consideration and consultation of things eternal. 
and that what the philosopher calls the reasoning or opinionative part is the same as the lower reason which according to augustine is intent on the disposal of temporal things therefore the higher reason is another power than the lower objection four further damascene says on the orthodox faith too that opinion rises from the imagination then the mind by judging of the truth or error of the opinion discovers the truth whence men's mind is derived from metiendo measuring and therefore the intellect regards those things which are already subject to judgment and true decision therefore the opinionative power which is the lower reason is distinct from the mind and the intellect by which we may understand the higher reason on the contrary augustine says on the trinity seven four that the higher and the lower reason are only distinct by their functions therefore they are not two powers i answer that the higher and lower reason as they are understood by augustine can in no way be two powers of the soul for he says that the higher reason is that which is intent on the contemplation and consultation of things eternal forasmuch as in contemplation it sees them in themselves and in consultation it takes its rules of action from them but he calls the lower reason that which is intent on the disposal of temporal things now these two namely eternal and temporal are related to our knowledge in this way that one of them is the means of knowing the other for by way of discovery we come through knowledge of temporal things to that of things eternal according to the words of the apostle romans one twenty the invisible things of god are clearly seen being understood by the things that are made while by way of judgment from eternal things already known we judge of temporal things and according to laws of things eternal we dispose of temporal things but it may happen that the medium and what is attained thereby belong to different habits as the first indemonstrable principles belong to the habit of the intellect whereas the conclusions which we draw from them belong to the habit of science and so it happens that from the principles of geometry we draw a conclusion in another science for example perspective but the power of the reason is such that both medium and term belong to it for the act of the reason is as it were a movement from one thing to another but the same movable thing passes through the medium and reaches the end wherefore the higher and the lower reasons are one and the same power but according to augustine they are distinguished by the functions of their actions and according to their various habits for wisdom is attributed to the higher reason science to the lower reply objection one we speak of parts in whatever way a thing is divided and so far as reason is divided according to its various acts the higher and lower reason are called parts but not because they are different powers reply objection to the lower reason is said to flow from the higher or to be ruled by it as far as the principles made use of by the lower reason are drawn from and directed by the principles of the higher reason reply objection three 
The scientific part, of which the philosopher speaks, is not the same as the higher reason. For necessary truths are found even among temporal things, of which natural science and mathematics treat. And the opinionative and ratiocinative part is more limited than the lower reason, for it regards only things contingent. Neither must we say, without any qualification, that a power by which the intellect knows necessary things is distinct from a power by which it knows contingent things, because it knows both under the same objective aspect, namely under the aspect of being and truth. Wherefore, it perfectly knows necessary things which have perfect being and truth, since it penetrates to their very essence, from which it demonstrates their proper accidents. On the other hand, it knows contingent things, but imperfectly, forasmuch as they have but imperfect being and truth. Now perfect and imperfect in the action do not vary the power, but they vary the actions as to the mode of acting, and consequently the principles of the actions and the habits themselves. And therefore the philosopher postulates two lesser parts of the soul, namely the scientific and the ratiocentive not because they are two powers, but because they are distinct according to a different aptitude for receiving various habits, concerning the variety of which he inquires. For contingent and necessary, though differing according to their proper genera, nevertheless agree in the common aspect of beating, which the intellect considers and to which they are variously compared as perfect and imperfect. Reply Objection 4 that distinction given by Damascene is according to the variety of acts, not according to the variety of powers. For opinion signifies an act of the intellect which leans to one side of a contradiction, whilst in fear of the other. While to judge or measure, mensuare, is an act of the intellect applying certain principles to examine propositions. From this is taken the word mens, mind. Lastly, to understand is to adhere to the informed judgment with approval. Tenth Article, Question 79, Article 10. Whether intelligence is a power distinct from intellect? Objection 1. It would seem that the intelligence is another power than the intellect. For we read in De Spiritu et Anima that when we wish to rise from the lower to higher things, First the sense comes to our aid, then imagination, then reason, then intellect, and afterwards intelligence. But imagination and sense are distinct powers, therefore also intellect and intelligence are distinct. Objection 2. Further, Boethius says, of Consolation 5.4, that sense considers man in one way, imagination in another reason in another, intelligence in another. But intellect is the same power as reason. Therefore, seemingly, intelligence is a distinct power from intellect, as reason is a distinct power from imagination or sense. Objection 3. Further, actions came before powers, as the philosopher says on the soul 2.4. But intelligence is an act separate from others attributed to the intellect. For Damascene says, on the orthodox faith too, that the first movement is called intelligence, but that intelligence which is about a certain thing is called intention, 
That which remains and conforms the soul to that which is understood is called invention. An invention, when it remains in the same man, examining and judging of itself, is called phronesis, that is, wisdom. And phronesis, if dilated, makes thought, that is, orderly, internal speech, from which, they say, comes speech expressed by the tongue. Therefore, it seems that intelligence is some special power. On the contrary, the philosopher says, on the soul 3.6, that intelligence is of indivisible things in which there is nothing false. But the knowledge of these things belongs to the intellect. Therefore, intelligence is not another power than the intellect. I answer that the word intelligence properly signifies the intellect's very act, which is to understand. However, in some works translated from the Arabic, the separate substances which we call angels are called intelligences, and perhaps for this reason, that such substances are always actually understanding. But in the works translated from the Greek, they are called intellects or minds. Thus, intelligence is not distinct from intellect, as power is from power, but as act is from power. And such a division is recognized even by the philosophers, for sometimes they assign four intellects, namely the active and passive intellects, the intellect in habit and the actual intellect, of which four the active and passive intellects are different powers, just as in all things the active power is distinct from the passive. But three of these are distinct as three states of the passive intellect, which is sometimes in potentiality only, and thus is called passive. Sometimes it is in the first act, which is knowledge, and thus it is called intellect in habit. And sometimes it is in the second act, which is to consider, and thus it is called intellect, or actual intellect. Reply Objection 1. If this authority is accepted, intelligence there means the act of the intellect and thus it is divided against intellect as act against power. Reply Objection 2. Boethius takes intelligence as meaning that act of the intellect which transcends the act of reason. Wherefore, he also says that reason alone belongs to the human race, as intelligence alone belongs to God, for it belongs to God to understand all things without any investigation. Reply Objection 3. All those acts which Damascene enumerates belong to one power, namely the intellectual power. For this power first of all only apprehends something, and this act is called intelligence. Secondly, it directs what it apprehends to the knowledge of something else, or to some operation, and this is called intention. And when it goes on in search of what it intends, it is called invention. When by reference to something known for certain it examines what it has found, it is said to know or to be wise, which belongs to phronesis or wisdom. For it belongs to the wise man to judge, as the philosopher says, Metaphysics 1-2. And when once it has obtained something for certain as being fully examined, it thinks about the means of making it known to others. And this is the ordering of interior speech from which proceeds external speech. For every difference of act does not make the powers vary, 
but only what cannot be reduced to one same principle, as we have said above, question 78, article 4. Eleventh article, question 79, article 11. Whether the speculative and practical intellects are distinct powers. Objection 1. It would seem that the speculative and practical intellects are distinct powers. For the apprehensive and motive are different kinds of powers, as is clear from On the Soul 2.3. But the speculative intellect is merely an apprehensive power, while the practical intellect is a motive power. Therefore, they are distinct powers. Objection 2. Further, the different nature of the object differentiates the power. But the object of the speculative intellect is truth, and of the practical is good, which differ in nature. Therefore, the speculative and practical intellect are distinct powers. Objection 3. Further, in the intellectual part, the practical intellect is compared to the speculative, as the estimative is to the imaginative power in the sensitive part. But the estimative differs from the imaginative as power form power, as we have said above, question 78, article 4. Therefore, also the speculative intellect differs from the practical. On the contrary, the speculative intellect by extension becomes practical, on the soul 3.10. But one power is not changed into another. Therefore, the speculative and practical intellects are not distinct powers. I answer that. The speculative and practical intellects are not distinct powers. The reason of which is that, as we have said above, question 77, article 3, what is accidental to the nature of the object of a power does not differentiate that power. For it is accidental to a thing colored to be man, or to be great or small. Hence all things are apprehended by the same power of sight. Now to a thing apprehended by the intellect, it is accidental whether it be directed to operation or not. And according to this, the speculative and practical intellects differ. For it is the speculative intellect which directs what it apprehends not to operation, but to the consideration of truth, while the practical intellect is that which directs what it apprehends to operation. And this is what the philosopher says on the soul 3.10, that the speculative differs from the practical in its end. Whence each is named from its end, the one speculative, the other practical, that is, operative. Reply Objection 1. The practical intellect is a motive power, not as executing movement, but as directing towards it, and this belongs to it according to its mode of apprehension. Reply Objection 2. Truth and good include one another, for truth is something good, otherwise it would not be desirable, and good is something true, otherwise it would not be intelligible. Therefore, as the object of the appetite may be something true, as having the aspect of the good, for example, when someone desires to know the truth, so the object of the practical intellect is good directed to the operation and under the aspect of truth. For the practical intellect knows truth just as the speculative, but it directs the known truth to operation. Reply Objection 3 
Many differences differentiate the sensitive powers, which do not differentiate the intellectual powers, as we have said above, Article 7, Add 2, Question 77, Article 3, Add 4. Twelfth Article, Question 79, Article 12. Whether syndresis is a special power of the soul distinct from the others. Objection 1. It would seem that syndresis is a special power distinct from the others. For those things which fall under one division seem to be of the same genus. But in the gloss of Jerome on Ezekiel 1.6, syndresis is divided against the irascible, the concupiscible, and the rational, which are powers. Therefore, syndresis is a power. Objection 2. Further, opposite things are the same genus, but syndresis and sensuality seem to be opposed to one another because syndresis always incites to good, while sensuality always incites to evil. Whence it is signified by the serpent, as is clear from Augustine, on the Trinity 12, 12 and 13. It seems, therefore, that syndresis is a power just as sensuality is. Objection 3. Further, Augustine says, on Free Will 2.10, that in the natural power of judgment there are certain rules and seeds of virtue, both true and unchangeable. And this is what we call syndresis. Since, therefore, the unchangeable rules which guide our judgment belong to the reason as to its higher part, as Augustine says, on Trinity 12.2, it seems that syndresis is the same as reason, and thus it is a power. On the contrary, according to the philosopher, Metaphysics 8.2, rational powers regard opposite things, but syndresis does not regard opposites, but inclines to good only. Therefore, syndresis is not a power, for if it were a power, it would be a rational power, since it is not found in brute animals. I answer that, Syndresis is not a power, but a habit, though some held that it is a power higher than reason, while others, confer Alexander of Hales, Summa Theologica 2, question 73, said that it is reason itself, not as reason, but as nature. In order to make this clear, we must observe that, as we have said above, Article 8, man's act of reasoning, since it is a kind of movement, proceeds from the understanding of certain things, namely those which are naturally known without any investigation on the part of reason, as from an immovable principle, and ends also at the understanding, inasmuch as by means of those principles naturally known, we judge of those things which we have discovered by reasoning. Now it is clear that, as the speculative reason argues about speculative things, so that practical reason argues about practical things. Therefore, we must have, bestowed on us by nature, not only speculative principles, but also practical principles. Now, the first speculative principles bestowed on us by nature do not belong to a special power, but to a special habit, which is called the understanding of principles, as the philosopher explains Ethics 6.6. .6. Wherefore, the first practical principles, 
bestowed on us by nature, do not belong to a special power, but to a special natural habit, which we call syndresis. Whence syndresis is said to incite to good and to murmur at evil, inasmuch as through first principles we proceed to discover and judge of what we have discovered. It is therefore clear that syndresis is not a power, but a natural habit. Reply Objection 1. The division given by Jerome is taken from the variety of acts and not from the variety of powers, and various acts can belong to one power. Reply Objection 2. In like manner, the opposition of sensuality to syndresis is an opposition of acts and not of the different species of one genus. Reply Objection 3. Those unchangeable notions are the first practical principles concerning which no one errs, and they are attributed to reason as to a power and to syndresis as to a habit. Wherefore we judge naturally both by our reason and by syndresis. Thirteenth Article. Question 79. Article 13. Whether conscience be a power. Objection 1. It would seem that conscience is a power, for Origen says, Commentary on Romans 2.15, that conscience is a correcting and guiding spirit accompanying the soul, by which it is led away from evil and made to cling for good. But in the soul, spirit designates a power, either the mind itself, according to the text, Ephesians 4.13, Be ye renewed in the spirit of your mind. Or the imagination, which imaginary vision is called spiritual, as Augustine says, Genesis Adlet 12, 7, 24. Therefore, conscience is a power. Objection 2. Further, nothing is a subject of sin except a power of the soul. But conscience is a subject of sin, for it is said of some that their mind and conscience are defiled. Titus 1.15. Therefore, it seems that conscience is a power. Objection 3. Further, conscience must of necessity be either an act, a habit, or a power. But it is not an act, for thus it would not always exist in man. Nor is it a habit, for conscience is not one thing but many, since we are directed by our actions by many habits of knowledge. Therefore, conscience is a power. On the contrary, conscience can be laid aside, but a power cannot be laid aside. Therefore, conscience is not a power. I answer that, properly speaking, conscience is not a power, but an act. This is evident both from the very name and from those things which, in the common way of speaking, are attributed to conscience. For conscience, according to the very nature of the word, implies the relation of knowledge to something. For conscience may be resolved into cum alio scientia, that is, knowledge applied to an individual case. But the application of knowledge to something is done by some act. Wherefore, from this explanation of the name, it is clear that conscience is an act. The same is manifest from those things which are attributed to conscience. For conscience is said to witness, to bind, or incite, and also to accuse, torment, or rebuke. And all these follow the application of knowledge or science to what we do, which application is made in three ways. 
one way in so far as we recognize that we have done or not done something. Thy conscience knoweth that thou hast often spoken evil of others. Ecclesiastes 7.23 And according to this, conscience is said to witness. In another way, so far as through the conscience we judge that something should be done or not done. And in this case, conscience is said to incite or to bind. In the third way, so far as by conscience, we judge that something done is well done or ill done. And in this sense, conscience is said to excuse, accuse, or torment. Now, it is clear that all these things follow the actual application of knowledge to what we do. Wherefore, properly speaking, conscience demonstrates an act. But since habit is a principle of act, sometimes the name conscience is given to the first natural habit, namely synderesis. Thus Jerome calls synderesis conscience. Gloss Ezekiel 1.6 Basil, the principle of man, Proverbs, the natural power of judgment. And Damascene, on the Orthodox faith 4.22, says that it is the law of our intellect for it is customary for causes and effects to be called after one another. Reply Objection 1 Conscience is called a spirit, so far as spirit is the same as mind, because conscience is a certain pronouncement of the mind. Reply Objection 2 The conscience is said to be defiled, not as subject, but as the thing known is knowledge, so far as someone knows he is defiled. Reply Objection 3. Although an act does not always remain in itself, yet it always remains in its cause, which is power and habit. Now all the habits by which conscience is formed, although many, nevertheless have their efficacy from one first habit, the habit of first principles, which is called synderesis. And for this special reason, this habit is sometimes called conscience, as we have said above. End of Question 79, Part 2. Question 80 of Summa Theologica, Pars Prima, On Man. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org Recording by Adam Summa Theologica Pars Prima On Man By St. Thomas Aquinas Translated by the Fathers of the English Dominican Province Question 80 Of the Appetitive Powers in General In Two Articles Next, we consider the Appetitive Powers concerning which there are four heads of consideration. First, the appetitive powers in general. Second, sensuality. Third, the will. Fourth, the free will. Under the first, there are two points of inquiry. One, whether the appetite should be considered a special power of the soul. Two, whether the appetite should be divided into intellectual and sensitive as distinct powers. First Article 1. Question 80. Article 1. Whether the appetite is a special power of the soul. 
Objection 1. It would seem that the appetite is not a special power of the soul, for no power of the soul is to be assigned for those things which are common to animate and to inanimate things. But appetite is common to animate and inanimate things, since all desire good, as the philosopher says, Ethics 1, 1. Therefore, the appetite is not a special power of the soul. Objection 2. Further, powers are differentiated by their objects. But what desire is the same as what we know? Therefore, the appetitive power is not distinct from the apprehensive power. Objection 3. Further, the common is not divided from the proper. But each power of the soul desires some particular desirable thing, namely its own suitable object. Therefore, with regard to this object, which is the desirable in general, we should not assign some particular power distinct from the others, called the appetitive power. On the contrary, the philosopher distinguishes on the soul, two, three, the appetitive from the other powers. Damascene also, on the orthodox faith, 2.22, distinguishes the appetitive from the cognitive powers. I answer that it is necessary to assign an appetitive power to the soul. To make this evident, we must observe that some inclination follows every form. For example, fire, by its form, is inclined to rise, and to generate its like. Now the form is found to have a more perfect existence in those things which participate knowledge than in those which lack knowledge. For in those which lack knowledge, the form is found to determine each thing only to its own being, that is, to its nature. Therefore, this natural form is followed by a natural inclination, which is called the natural appetite. But in those things which have knowledge, each one is determined to its own natural being by its natural form, in such a manner that it is nevertheless receptive of the species of other things. For example, sense receives the species of all things sensible, and the intellect of all things intelligible, so that the soul of man is, in a way, all things by sense and intellect, and thereby those things that have knowledge, in a way, approach to a likeness to God, in whom all things pre-exist. As Dionysius says, Divine Names 5. Therefore, as forms exist in those things that have knowledge in a higher manner and above the manner of natural forms, so must there be in them an inclination surpassing the natural inclination, which is called the natural appetite. And this superior inclination belongs to the appetitive power of the soul, through which the animal is able to desire what it apprehends, 
and not only that to which it is inclined by its natural form. And so it is necessary to assign an appetitive power to the soul. Reply to Objection 1 Appetite is found in things which have knowledge, above the common manner in which it is found in all things, as we have said above. Therefore, it is necessary to assign to the soul a particular power. Reply to Objection number 2 What is apprehended and what is desired are the same in reality, but different in aspect. For a thing is apprehended as something sensible or intelligible, whereas it is desired as suitable or good. Now it is diversity of aspect in the objects, and not material diversity, which demands a diversity of powers. Reply to Objection 3 Each power of the soul is a form or nature, and has a natural inclination to something. Wherefore each power desires by the natural appetite that object which is suitable to itself, above which natural appetite is the animal appetite, which follows the apprehension, and by which something is desired not as suitable to this or that power, such as sight for seeing or sound for hearing, but simply as suitable to the animal. Second Article 1. Question 80. Article 2. Whether the sensitive and intellectual appetites are distinct powers. Objection 1. It would seem that the sensitive and intellectual appetites are not distinct powers. For powers are not differentiated by accidental differences, as we have seen above. Question 77. Article 3. But it is accidental to the appetible object whether it be apprehended by the sense or by the intellect. Therefore, the sensitive and intellectual appetites are not distinct powers. Objection 2. Further, intellectual knowledge is of universals, and it is distinct from sensitive knowledge which is of individual things. But there is no place for this distinction in the appetite of part, for since the appetite is a movement of the soul to individual things, seemingly every act of the appetite regards an individual thing. Therefore, the intellectual appetite is not distinguished from the sensitive. Objection 3. Further, as under the apprehensive power, the appetitive is subordinate as a lower power, so also is the motive power. But the motive power, which in man follows the intellect, is not distinct from the motive power, which in animals follows sense. Therefore, for a like reason, neither is there distinction in the appetitive part. On the contrary, the philosopher on the soul three nine distinguishes a double appetite and says on the soul three eleven that the higher appetite moves the lower 
I answer that we must needs say that the intellectual appetite is a distinct power from the sensitive appetite. For the appetitive power is a passive power, which is naturally moved by the thing apprehended. Wherefore, the apprehended, appetible, is a mover which is not moved, while the appetite is a mover moved, as the philosopher says in On the Soul 3.10 and Metaphysics, Didascale 11.7. Now passive and movable are differentiated according to the distinction of the corresponding active and motive principles, because the motive must be proportionate to the movable, and the active to the passive. Indeed, the passive power itself has its very nature from the relation to its active principle. Therefore, since what is apprehended by the intellect and what is apprehended by sense are generically different, consequently the intellectual appetite is distinctive from the sensitive. Reply to Objection 1. It is not accidental to the thing desired to be apprehended by the sense or the intellect. On the contrary, this belongs to it by its nature. For the appetible does not move the appetite except as it is apprehended. Wherefore, differences in the thing apprehended are of themselves differences of the appetable. And so, the appetitive powers are distinct according to the distinction of the things apprehended as their proper objects. Reply to Objection 2 The intellectual appetite, though it tends to individual things, which exist outside the soul, yet tends to them as standing under the universal, as when it desires something because it is good. Wherefore, the philosopher says, Rhetoric 2.4, that hatred can regard a universal as when we hate every kind of thief. In the same way, by the intellectual appetite, we may desire the immaterial good, which is not apprehended by sense, such as knowledge, virtue, and such like. End of Question 80 Recording by Adam Question 81 of Summa Theologica, Pars Prima on Man This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Christine G. Summa Theologica, Pars Prima on Man, by St. Thomas Aquinas. Translated by the Fathers of the English Dominican Province. Question 81. Of the Power of Sensuality, in Three Articles. Next, we have to consider the power of sensuality, concerning which there are three points of inquiry. 1. Whether sensuality is an appetitive power. 2. Whether it is divided into irascible and concupiscible, as distinct powers. 3. Whether the irascible and concupiscible powers obey reason. First Article 
Part 1. Question 81. Article 1. Whether sensuality is only appetitive. Objection 1. It would seem that sensuality is not only appetitive, but also cognitive. For Augustine says, on the Trinity, 12.12, quote, the sensual movement of the soul which is directed to the bodily senses is common to us and beasts. End quote. But the bodily senses belong to the apprehensive powers. Therefore, sensuality is a cognitive power. Objection 2. Further, things which come under one division seem to be of one genus. But Augustine, on the Trinity 12.12, 12, divides sensuality against the higher and lower reason, which belong to knowledge. Therefore, sensuality also is apprehensive. Objection 3. Further, in man's temptations sensuality stands in the place of the, quote, serpent, end quote. But in the temptation of our first parents, the serpent presented himself as one giving information and proposing sin, which belonged to the cognitive power. Therefore, sensuality is a cognitive power. On the contrary, sensuality is defined as, quote, the appetitive of things belonging to the body, end quote. I answer that the name sensuality seems to be taken from the sensual movement of which Augustine speaks, on the Trinity, 12, 12, 13, just as the name of a power is taken from its act, for instance, sight from seeing. Now the central movement is an appetitive following sensitive apprehension, for the act of the apprehensive power is not so properly called a movement as the act of the appetite. Since the operation of the apprehensive power is completed in the very fact that the thing apprehended is in the one that apprehends, while the operation of the appetitive power is completed in the fact that he who desires is born towards the thing desirable. Therefore, the operation of the apprehensive power is likened to rest, whereas the operation of the appetitive power is rather likened to movement. Wherefore, by sensual movement we understand the operation of the appetitive power, so that sensuality is the name of the sensitive appetitive. Reply Objection 1 By saying that the sensual movement of the soul is directed to the bodily senses, Augustine does not give us to understand that the bodily senses are included in sensuality, but rather that the movement of sensuality is a certain inclination to the bodily senses, since we desire things which are apprehended through the bodily senses. And thus, the bodily senses appertain to sensuality as a preamble. Reply Objection 2 Sensuality is divided against higher and lower reason, as having in common with them the act of movement. For the apprehensive power, to which belong the higher and lower reason, is a motive power, as is appetite, to which appertains sensuality. Reply Objection 3. The serpent not only showed and proposed sin, but also incited to the commission of sin, and in this sensuality is signified by the serpent. Second Article Part 1 Question 81, Article 2. Whether the sensitive appetite is divided into the irascible and concupiscible as distinct powers. Objection 1. 
it would seem that the sensitive appetite is not divided into the irascible and concupiscible as distinct powers. For the same power of the soul regards both sides of a contrariety. A sight regards both black and white, according to the philosopher, on the soul, 2.11, but suitable and harmful are contraries. Since, then, the concusable power regards what is suitable, while the irascible is concerned with what is harmful, it seems that irascible and concupiscible are the same power in the soul. Objection 2. Further, the sensitive appetite regards only what is suitable according to the senses. But such is the object of the concupiscible power. Therefore, there is no sensitive appetite differing from the concupiscible. Objection 3. Further, hatred is in the irascible part. For Jerome says on Matthew 13.33, quote, We ought to have the hatred of vice in the irascible power, end quote but hatred is contrary to love, and is in the concupiscible part. Therefore, the concupiscible and irascible are the same powers. On the contrary, Gregory of Nyssa, Nemesius, de Natura Hominis, and Damascene, the Orthodox Faith, 2.12, assign two parts to the sensitive appetite, the irascible and the concupiscible. I answer that the sensitive appetite is one generic power, and is called sensuality, but it is divided into two powers, which are species of the sensitive appetite, the irascible and the concupiscible. We must observe that in natural corruptible things there is needed an inclination not only to the acquisition of what is suitable and to the avoiding of what is harmful, but also to resistance against corruptive and contrary agencies which are a hindrance to the acquisition of what is suitable and are productive of harm. For example, fire has a natural inclination, not only to rise from a lower position which is unsuitable to it, towards a higher position which is suitable, but also to resist whatever destroys or hinders its action. Therefore, since the sensitive appetite is an inclination following sensitive apprehension, as natural appetite is an inclination following the natural form, there must needs be in the sensitive part two appetitive powers, one through which the soul is simply inclined to seek what is suitable, according to the senses, and to fly from what is hurtful, and this is called the concupiscible, and the other, whereby an animal resists these attacks, that hinder what is suitable, and inflict harm, and this is called irascible. Whence we say that its object is something arduous, because its tendency is to overcome and rise above obstacles. Now these two are not to be reduced to one principle, for sometimes the soul busies itself with unpleasant things, against the inclination of the concupiscible appetite, in order that, following the impulse of the irascible appetite, it may fight against obstacles. Wherefore also the passions of the irascible appetite counteract the passions of the concupiscible appetite, since the concupiscence, on being aroused, diminishes anger, and anger being aroused, diminishes concupiscence in many cases. This is clear also from the fact that the irascible is, as it were, the champion and defender of the concupiscible when it rises up against what hinders the acquisition of the suitable things which the concupiscible desires, or against what inflicts harm, from which the concupiscible flies. 
and for this reason all the passions of the irascible appetite rise from the passions of the concupiscible appetite and terminate in them for instance anger rises from sadness and having wrought vengeance terminates in joy for this reason also the quarrels of animals are about things concupiscible namely food and sex as the philosophers say on the soul history eight reply objection one the concupiscible power regards both what is suitable and what is unsuitable but the object of the irascible power is to resist the onslaught of the unsuitable reply objection two as in the apprehensive powers of the sensitive part there is an estimate power which perceives those things which do not impress the senses as we have said above question seventy eight article two so also in the sensitive appetite there is a certain appetitive power which regards something as suitable not because it pleases the senses but because it is useful to the animal for self-defence and this is the irascible power reply objection three hatred belongs simply to the concupiscible appetite but by reason of the strife which arises from hatred it may belong to the irascible appetite third article part one question eighty one article three whether the irascible and concupiscible appetites obey reason objection one it would seem that the irascible and concupiscible appetites do not obey reason for irascible and concupiscible are parts of sensuality but sensuality does not obey reason wherefore it is signified by the serpent as augustine says on the trinity twelve twelve thirteen therefore the irascible and concupiscible appetites do not obey reason objection two further what obeys a certain thing does not resist it but the irascible and concupiscible appetites resist reason according to the apostle romans seven twenty three quote, i see another law in my members fighting against the law of my mind End quote. therefore the irascible and concupiscible appetites do not obey reason objection three further as the appetitive power is inferior to the rational part of the soul so also is the sensitive power but the sensitive part of the soul does not obey reason for we neither hear nor see just when we wish therefore in like manner neither do the powers of the sensitive appetite the irascible and concupiscible obey reason on the contrary damascene says on the orthodox faith two twelve that quote, the part of the soul which is obedient and amendable to reason is divided into concupiscence and anger end quote. i answer that in two ways the irascible and concupiscible powers obey the higher part in which are the intellect or reason and the will first as to reason secondly as to the will they obey the reason in their own acts because in other animals the sensitive appetite is naturally moved by the estimate power for instance a sheep esteeming the wolf as an enemy is afraid in man the estimate power as we have said above question seventy eight article four is replaced by the cogitative power which is called by some quote, the particular reason end quote, because it compares individual intentions wherefore in man the sensitive appetite is naturally moved by this particular reason but this same particular reason is naturally guided and moved according to the universal reason wherefore in syllogistic matters 
particular conclusions are drawn from universal propositions. Therefore it is clear that the universal reason directs the sensitive appetite, which is divided into concupiscible and irascible, and this appetite obeys it. But because to draw particular conclusions from universal principles is not the work of the intellect, as such, but of the reason, hence it is that the irascible and concupiscible are said to obey the reason rather than to obey the intellect. Any one can experience this in himself, for by applying certain universal considerations, anger or fear or the like may be modified or excited. To the will also is the sensitive appetite subject in execution, which is accomplished by the motive power. For in other animals the movement follows at once the concupiscible and irascible appetites. For instance, the sheep, fearing the wolf, flees at once, because it has no superior counteracting appetite. On the contrary, man is not moved at once, according to the irascible and concupiscible appetites, but he awaits the command of the will, which is the superior appetite. For wherever there is order among the number of motive powers, the second only moves by virtue of the first, wherefore the lower appetite is not sufficient to cause movement, unless the higher appetite consents. And this is what the philosopher says, on the soul, 3, 11, that, Quote, the higher appetite moves the lower appetite, as the higher sphere moves the lower. End quote. In this way, therefore, the irascible and concupiscible are subject to reason. Reply objection one. Sensuality is signified by the serpent, in what is proper to it as a sensitive power. But the irascible and concupiscible powers denominate the sensitive appetite rather on the part of the act to which they are led by reason, as we have said. Reply objection to, as the philosopher says, Polite, 1-2, We observe in an animal a despotic and a politic principle, for the soul dominates the body by a despotic power, but the intellect dominates the appetite by a politic and royal power. End quote. For a power is called despotic whereby a man rules his slaves, who have not the right to resist in any way the orders of the one that commands them, since they have nothing of their own. But that power is called politic, and royal by which a man rules over free subjects, who, though subjects to the government of the ruler, have nevertheless something of their own, by reason of which they can resist the orders of him who commands. And so, the soul is said to rule the body by a despotic power, because the members of the body cannot in any way resist the sway of the soul, but that the soul's command both hand and foot, and whatever member is naturally moved by voluntary movement, are moved at once. But the intellect or reason is said to rule the irascible and concupiscible by a politic power, because the sensitive appetite has something of its own, by virtue whereof it can resist the commands of reason. For the sensitive appetite is naturally moved, not only by the estimate power in other animals, and in man by the cogitative power which the universal reason guides, but also by the imagination and sense. Whence it is that we experience that the irascible and concupiscible powers do resist reason, inasmuch as we sense or imagine something pleasant, which reason forbids, or unpleasant, which reason commands. And so from the fact that the irascible and concupiscible resist reason in something, we must not conclude that they do not obey. 
Reply objection 3. The exterior senses require for action exterior sensible things, whereby they are affected, and the presence of which is not ruled by reason. But the interior powers, both appetitive and apprehensive, do not require exterior things. Therefore they are subject to the command of reason, which cannot only incite or modify the affections of the appetitive power, but can also form the phantasism of the imagination. End of question 81. Recording by Christine G. in Oslo, Norway. The 8th of October, 2012. Question 82 of Summa Theologica, Pars Prima, On Man. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Jack Watson War. Summa Theologica, Pars Prima, On Man, by St. Thomas Aquinas. Translated by the Fathers of the English Dominican Province. Question 82 of the will, in five articles. We next consider the will. Under this head there are five points of inquiry. 1. Whether the will desires something of necessity. 2. Whether it desires everything of necessity. 3. Whether it is a higher power than the intellect. 4. Whether the will moves the intellect. 5. Whether the will is divided into irascible and concupiscible. First article. 1. Question 82. Article 1. Whether the will desires something of necessity. Objection 1. It would seem that the will desires nothing of necessity. For Augustine says, City of God, 5.10, that if anything is necessary, it is not voluntary. But whatever the will desires is voluntary. Therefore, nothing that the will desires is desired of necessity. Objection 2. Further, the rational powers, according to the philosopher, metaphysics, 8.2, extend to opposite things. But the will is a rational power because, as he says, on the soul, 3.9, the will is in the reason. Therefore, the will extends to opposite things, and therefore it is determined to nothing of necessity. Objection 3. Further, by the will, we are masters of our own actions, but we are not masters of that which is of necessity. Therefore, the act of the will cannot be necessitated. On the contrary, Augustine says, on the Trinity, 8.4, that all desire happiness with one will. Now, if this were not necessary, but contingent, there would at least be a few exceptions. Therefore, the will desires something of necessity. I answer that the word necessity is employed in many ways. For that which must be is necessary. Now, that a thing must be may belong to it by an intrinsic principle, either material, as when we say that everything composed of contraries is of necessity corruptible, or formal, as when we say that it is necessary for the three angles of a triangle to be equal to two right angles. And this is natural, or absolute necessity. In another way, that a thing must be belongs to it by reason of something extrinsic, which is either the end or the agent. On the part of the end, as when without it the end is not to be attained, or so well attained, for instance, food is said to be necessary for life, and a horse is necessary for a journey, this is called necessity of end, and sometimes also utility. 
On the part of the agent, a thing must be when someone is forced by some agent so that he is not able to do the contrary. This is called necessity of coercion. Now, this necessity of coercion is altogether repugnant to the will. For we call that violent which is against the inclination of a thing. But the very movement of the will is an inclination to something. Therefore, as a thing is called natural because it is according to the inclination of nature, so a thing is called voluntary because it is according to the inclination of the will. Therefore, just as it is impossible for a thing to be at the same time violent and natural, so it is impossible for a thing to be absolutely coerced or violent and voluntary. But necessity of end is not repugnant to the will, when the end cannot be attained except in one way. Thus from the will to cross the sea arises in the will the necessity to wish for a ship. In like manner, neither is natural necessity repugnant to the will. Indeed, more than this, for as the intellect necessity adheres to first principles, the will must, of necessity, adhere to the last end, which is happiness, since the end is in practical matters what the principle is in speculative matters. For what befits a thing naturally and immovably must be the root and principle of all else appertaining thereto, since the nature of a thing is the first in everything, and every movement arises from something immovable. Reply to Objection 1. The words of Augustine are to be understood of the necessity of coercion, but natural necessity does not take away the liberty of the will, as he says himself. The City of God 5.10. Reply to Objection 2. The will, so far as it desires a thing naturally, corresponds rather to the intellect as regards natural principles than to the reason, which extends to opposite things. Wherefore, in this respect, it is rather an intellectual than a rational power. Reply to Objection 3. We are masters of our own actions by reason of our being able to choose this or that, but choice regards not the end, but the means to the end, as the philosopher says. Ethics 3.9. Wherefore, the desire of the ultimate end does not regard these actions of which we are masters. Second article. 1. Question 82. Article 2. Whether the will desires of necessity whatever it desires. Objection 1. It would seem that the will desires all things of necessity, whatever it desires. For Dionysius says, Divine Names, 4, that evil is outside the scope of the will. Therefore, the will tends of necessity to the good which is proposed to it. Objection 2. Further, the object of the will is compared to the will as the mover to the thing movable. But the movement of the movable necessarily follows the mover. Therefore, it seems that the will's object moves it of necessity. Objection 3. Further, as the thing apprehended by sense is the object of the sensitive appetite, so the thing apprehended by the intellect is the object of the intellectual appetite, which is called the will. But what is apprehended by the sense moves the sensitive appetite of necessity. For Augustine says, the literal meaning of Genesis, 4.14, that animals are moved by things seen. Therefore it seems that whatever is apprehended by the intellect moves the will of necessity. On the contrary, Augustine says, Retractations, 1.9, that it is the will by which we sin and live well, and so the will extends to opposite things. Therefore, it does not desire of necessity all things whatsoever it desires. I answer that, the will does not desire of necessity whatsoever it desires. In order to make this evident, we must observe that, as the intellect naturally and of necessity adheres to the first principles, so the will adheres to the last end, as we have said already. Article 1. Now, 
There are some things intelligible which have not a necessary connection with the first principles, such as contingent propositions, the denial of which does not involve a denial of the first principles, and to such the intellect does not assent of necessity. But there are some propositions which have a necessary connection with the first principles, such as demonstrable conclusions, a denial of which involves a denial of the first principles, and to these the intellect assents of necessity, when once it is aware of the necessary connection of these conclusions with the principles. But it does not assent of necessity until through the demonstration it recognizes the necessity of such connection. It is the same with the will. For there are certain individual goods which have not a necessary connection with happiness, because without them a man can be happy, and to such the will does not adhere of necessity. But there are some things which have a necessary connection with happiness, by means of which man adheres to God, in whom alone true happiness consists. Nevertheless, until through the certitude of the divine vision the necessity of such connection be shown, the will does not adhere to God of necessity, nor to those things which are of God. But the will of the man who sees God in his essence of necessity adheres to God, just as now we desire of necessity to be happy. It is therefore clear that the will does not desire of necessity whatever it desires. Reply to objection 1. The will can tend to nothing except under the aspect of good. But because good is of many kinds, for this reason the will is not of necessity determined to one. Reply to objection 2. The mover, then, of necessity causes movement in the thing movable when the power of the mover exceeds the thing movable, so that its entire capacity is subject to the mover. But as the capacity of the will regards the universal and perfect good, its capacity is not subjected to any individual good, and therefore it is not of necessity moved by it. Reply to objection 3. The sensitive power does not compare different things with each other, as reason does, but it simply apprehends some one thing. Therefore, according to that one thing, it moves the sensitive appetite in a determinate way. But the reason is a power that compares several things together. Therefore, from several things the intellectual appetite, that is, the will, may be moved, but not of necessity from one thing. Third article. 1. Question 82. Article 3. Whether the will is a higher power than the intellect. Objection 1. It would seem that the will is a higher power than the intellect. For the object of the will is good and the end. But the end is the first and highest cause. Therefore the will is the first and highest power. Objection 2. Further, in the order of natural things we observe a progress from imperfect things to perfect. And this also appears in the powers of the soul. For sense precedes the intellect, which is more noble. Now the act of the will, in the natural order, follows the act of the intellect. Therefore the will is a more noble and more perfect power than the intellect. Objection 3. Further, habits are proportioned to their powers, as perfections to what they make perfect. But the habit which perfects the will, namely charity, is more noble than the habits which perfect the intellect. For it is written, 1 Corinthians 13.2, If I should know all mysteries, and if I should have all faith, and have not charity, I am nothing. Therefore the will is a higher power than the intellect. On the contrary, the philosopher holds the intellect to be the higher power. I answer that, the superiority of one thing over another can be considered in two ways, absolutely and relatively. Now, a thing is considered to be such absolutely which is considered such in itself, but relatively as it is such with regard to something else. If therefore the intellect and will be considered with regard to themselves, then the intellect is the higher power, and this is clear if we compare their respective objects to one another, for the object of the intellect is more simple and more absolute than the object of the will. Since the object of the intellect is the very idea of appetible good, and the appetible good, 
the idea of which is in the intellect, is the object of the will. Now, the more simple and the more abstract a thing is, the nobler and higher it is in itself, and therefore the object of the intellect is higher than the object of the will. Therefore, since the proper nature of a power is in its order to its object, it follows that the intellect, in itself and absolutely, is higher and nobler than the will. But relatively, and by comparison with something else, we find that the will is sometimes higher than the intellect, from the fact that the object of the will occurs in something higher than that in which occurs the object of the intellect. Thus, for instance, I might say that hearing is relatively nobler than sight, inasmuch as something in which there is sound is nobler than something in which there is colour, though colour is nobler and simpler than sound. For as we have said above, question 16, article 1, and question 27, article 4, the action of the intellect consists in this, that the idea of a thing understood is in the one who understands, while the act of the will consists in this, that the will is inclined to the thing itself as existing in itself, and therefore the philosopher says, in Metaphysics 4, Didascale 5.2, that good and evil, which are objects of the will, are in things, but truth and error, which are objects of the intellect, are in the mind. When, therefore, the thing in which there is good is nobler than the soul itself, in which is the idea understood? By comparison with such a thing, the will is higher than the intellect. But when the thing which is good is less noble than the soul, then even in comparison with that thing the intellect is higher than the will. Wherefore, the love of God is better than the knowledge of God, but, on the contrary, the knowledge of corporeal things is better than the love thereof. Absolutely, however, the intellect is nobler than the will. Reply to Objection 1. The aspect of causality is perceived by comparing one thing to another, and in such comparison the idea of good is found to be nobler. But truth signifies something more absolute, and extends to the idea of good itself. Wherefore, even good is something true. But again, truth is something good, for as much as the intellect is a thing, and truth its end. And among other ends, this is the most excellent, as also is the intellect among the other powers. Reply to Objection 2. What proceeds in order of generation and time is less perfect, for in one and in the same thing potentiality precedes act, and imperfection precedes perfection. But what proceeds absolutely and in order of nature is more perfect, for thus act precedes potentiality, and in this way the intellect precedes the will, as the motive power precedes the thing movable, and as the active precedes the passive, for good which is understood moves the will. Reply to Objection 3. This reason is verified of the will as compared with what is above the soul, for charity is the virtue by which we love God. Fourth article. 1. Question 82. Article 4. Whether the will moves the intellect. Objection 1. It would seem that the will does not move the intellect, for what moves excels and precedes what is moved, because what moves is an agent, and the agent is nobler than the patient, as Augustine says. The literal meaning of Genesis 7.16 and the philosopher, on the soul, 3, 5. But the intellect excels and precedes the will, as we have said above, article 3. Therefore, the will does not move the intellect. Objection 2. Further, what moves is not moved by what is moved, except perhaps accidentally. But the intellect moves the will, because the good apprehended by the intellect moves without being moved, whereas the appetite moves and is moved. Therefore, the intellect is not moved by the will. Objection 3. Further, we can will nothing but what we understand. If, therefore, in order to understand, the will moves by willing to understand, that act of the will must be preceded by another act of the intellect, and this act of the intellect by another act of the will, and so on indefinitely, which is impossible. Therefore, the will does not move the intellect. On the contrary, 
Damascene says, on the orthodox faith, 2.26, it is in our power to learn an art or not, as we list. But a thing is in our power by the will, and we learn art by the intellect. Therefore, the will moves the intellect. I answer that a thing is said to move in two ways. First, as an end. For instance, when we say that the end moves the agent. In this way, the intellect moves the will, because the good understood is the object of the will, and moves it as an end. Secondly, a thing is said to move as an agent, as what alters moves what is altered, and what impels moves what is impelled. In this way the will moves the intellect, and all the powers of the soul, as Anselm says. Aabma's Life of St. Anselm The reason is because wherever we have order among a number of active powers, that power which regards the universal end moves the powers which regard particular ends. And we may observe this both in nature and in things politic. For the heaven which aims at the universal preservation of things subject to generation and corruption, moves all inferior bodies, each of which aims at the preservation of its own species or of the individual. The king also, who aims at the common good of the whole kingdom, by his rule moves all the governors of cities, each of whom rules over his own particular city. Now the object of the will is good and the end in general, and each power is directed to some suitable good proper to it, as sight is directed to the perception of colour and the intellect to the knowledge of truth. Therefore the will as agent moves all the powers of the soul to their respective acts, except the natural powers of the vegetative part which are not subject to our will. Reply to objection 1. The intellect may be considered in two ways, as apprehensive of universal being and truth, and as a thing and a particular power having a determinate act. In like manner also the will may be considered in two ways, according to the common nature of its object, that is to say, as appetitive of universal good, and as a determinate power of the soul having a determinate act. If, therefore, the intellect and the will be compared with one another, according to the universality of their respective objects, then, as we have said above, Article 3, the intellect is simply higher and nobler than the will. If, however, we take the intellect as regards the common nature of its object, and the will as a determinate power, then again the intellect is higher and nobler than the will, because under the condition of being and truth, is contained both the will itself, and its act, and its object. Wherefore the intellect understands the will, and its act, and its object, just as it understands other species of things, as stone or wood, which are contained in the common notion of being and truth. But if we consider the will as regards the common nature of its object, which is good, and the intellect as a thing and a special power, then the intellect itself, and its act, and its object, which is truth, each of which is some species of good, are contained under the common notion of good and in this way the will is higher than the intellect, and can move it. From this we can easily understand why these powers include one another in their acts, because the intellect understands that the will wills, and the will wills the intellect to understand. In the same way, good is contained in truth, inasmuch as it is an understood truth, and truth in good, inasmuch as it is a desired good. Reply to Objection 2. The intellect moves the will in one sense, and the will moves the intellect in another, as we have said before. Reply to objection 3. There is no need to go on indefinitely, but we must stop at the intellect preceding all the rest. For every movement of the will must be preceded by apprehension, whereas every apprehension is not preceded by an act of the will. But the principle of counselling and understanding is an intellectual principle higher than our intellect, namely God, as also Aristotle says, Eudemian Ethics 7.14, and in this way he explains that there is no need to proceed indefinitely. Fifth article. 1. Question 82. Article 5. Whether we should distinguish irascible and concupiscible parts in the superior appetite. Objection 1. 
It would seem that we ought to distinguish irascible and concupiscible parts in the superior appetite, which is the will. For the concupiscible power is so called from concupiscere, to desire, and the irascible part from irasci, to be angry. But there is a concupiscence which cannot belong to the sensitive appetite, but only to the intellectual, which is the will. As the concupiscence of wisdom, of which it is said, Wisdom, 6, 21, the concupiscence of wisdom bringeth to the eternal kingdom. There is also a certain anger which cannot belong to the sensitive appetite, but only to the intellectual, as when our anger is directed against vice. Wherefore Jerome, commenting on Matthew 13.33, warns us to have the hatred of vice in the irascible part. Therefore, we should distinguish irascible and concupiscible parts of the intellectual soul as well as in the sensitive. Objection 2. Further, as is commonly said, Charity is in the concupiscible, and hope in the irascible part. But they cannot be in the sensitive appetite, because their objects are not sensible, but intellectual. Therefore we must assign an irascible and concupiscible power to the intellectual part. Objection 3. Further, it is said, on the spirit and the soul, that the soul has these powers, namely the irascible, concupiscible, and rational, before it is united to the body. But no power of the sensitive part belongs to the soul alone but to the soul and body united, as we have said above. Question 78, Articles 5 and 8. Therefore the irascible and concupiscible powers are in the will, which is the intellectual appetite. On the contrary, Gregory of Nyssa, Nemesius, on human nature, says that the irrational part of the soul is divided into the desiderative and irascible, and Damascene says the same, on the orthodox faith 2.12. And the philosopher says, on the soul 3.9, that the will is in the reason, while in the irrational part of the soul are concupiscence and anger, or desire and animus. I answer that, the irascible and concupiscible are not parts of the intellectual appetite, which is called the will, because, as was said above, question 59, article 4, and question 79, article 7, a power which is directed to an object according to some common notion is not differentiated by special differences which are contained under that common notion. For instance, because sight regards the same thing under the common notion of something coloured, the visual power is not multiplied according to the different kinds of colour. But if there were a power regarding white as white, and not as something coloured, it would be distinct from a power regarding black as black. Now, the sensitive appetite does not consider the common notion of good, because neither do the senses apprehend the universal, and therefore the parts of the sensitive appetite are differentiated by the different notions of particular good. For the concupiscible regards as proper to it the notion of good, as something pleasant to the senses and suitable to nature, whereas the irascible regards the notion of good as something that wards off and repels what is hurtful. But the will regards good according to the common notion of good, and therefore in the will, which is the intellectual appetite, there is no differentiation of appetitive powers, so that there be in the intellectual appetite an irascible power distinct from a concupiscible power, just as neither on the part of the intellect are the apprehensive powers multiplied, although they are on the part of the senses. Reply to Objection 1. Love, concupiscence, and the like can be understood in two ways. Sometimes they are taken as passions, arising, that is, with a certain commotion of the soul, and thus they are commonly understood, and in this sense they are only in the sensitive appetite. They may, however, be taken in another way, as far as there are simple affections without passion or commotion of the soul, and thus they are acts of the will. And in this sense, too, they are attributed to the angels and to God, but if taken in this sense, they do not belong to different powers, but only to one power, which is called the will. Reply to Objection 2. 
The will itself may be said to be irascible as far as it wills to repel evil, not from any sudden movement of a passion, but from a judgment of the reason. And in the same way the will may be said to be concupiscible on account of its desire for good. And thus in the irascible and concupiscible are charity and hope, that is, in the will as ordered to such acts. And in this way too we may understand the words quoted, on the spirit and the soul, that the irascible and concupiscible powers are in the soul before it is united to the body as long as we understand priority of nature and not of time. Although there is no need to have faith in what that book says, whence the answer to the third objection is clear. End of question 82. Question 83 of Summa Theologica, Pars Prima, on Man. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Christine G. Summa Theologica, Pars Prima, On Man, by St. Thomas Aquinas. Translated by the Fathers of the English Dominican Province. Question 83, of Free Will, in Four Articles. We now inquire concerning free will. Under this head... There are four points of inquiry. 1. Whether man has free will. 2. What is free will? A power, an act, or a habit? 3. If it is a power, is it appetitive or cognitive? 4. If it is appetitive, is it the same power as the will, or distinct? First article. First part, question 83. Article 1. Whether man has free will. Objection 1. It would seem that man has not free will. For whoever has free will does what he wills. But man does not what he wills, for it is written, Romans 7.19, For the good which I will I do not, but the evil which I will not, that I do. End quote. Therefore man has not free will. Objection 2. Further, Whoever has free will has in his power to will or not to will, to do or not to do, but this is not in man's power, for it is written, Romans 9.16, It is not of him that willeth, end quote, namely to will, quote, nor of him that runneth, end quote, namely to run, therefore man has not free will. Objection 3. Further, what is Quote, free is cause of itself, end quote, as the philosopher says, metaphysics, one, two. Therefore what is moved by another is not free. But God moves the will, for it is written, Proverbs 21, one, quote, the heart of the king is in the hand of the Lord, whithersoever he will, he shall turn it, end quote, and Philemon 2.13, quote, it is God who worketh in you both to will and to accomplish. End quote. Therefore, man has not free will. Objection 4. Further, whoever has free will is master of his own actions. But man is not master of his own actions. For it is written, Jeremiah 10.23, The way of a man is not his, neither is it in a man to walk. End quote. Therefore, man has not free will. Objection 5. Further, the philosopher says, Ethics 3.5, According as each one is, such does the end seem to him, 
end quote, but it is not in our power to be of one quality or another, for this comes to us from nature. Therefore, it is natural to us to follow some particular end, and therefore we are not free in so doing. On the contrary, it is written, Sirach, 15.14, quote, God made man from the beginning, and left him in the hand of his own counsel, end quote, and the gloss adds, quote, that is of his free will, end quote. I answer that man has free will, otherwise counsel, exhortations, commands, prohibitions, rewards, and punishments would be in vain. In order to make this evident, we must observe that some things act without judgment, as a stone moves downwards, and in like manner all things which lack knowledge, and some act from judgment, but not a free judgment, as brute animals. For the sheep, seeing the wolf, judges it a thing to be shunned, from a natural and not a free judgment, because it judges, not from reason, but from natural instinct. And the same thing is to be said of any judgment of brute animals. But man acts from judgment, because by his apprehensive power he judges that something should be avoided or sought. But because this judgment, in the case of some particular act, is not from a natural instinct, but from some act of comparison in the reason, therefore he acts from free judgment and retains the power of being inclined to various things. For reason in contingent matters may follow opposite courses, as we see in dialectic syllogisms and rhetorical arguments. Now particular operations are contingent, and therefore in such matters the judgment of reason may follow opposite courses, and is not determinative to one. And forasmuch as man is rational, is it necessary that man have a free will? Reply Objection 1 as we have said above, question 81, article 3, add 2, the sensitive appetitive, though it obeys the reason, yet in given cease can resist by desiring what the reason forbids. This is therefore the good which man does not when he wishes, namely, quote, not to desire against reason, end quote, as Augustine says. Reply objection 2. Those words of the Apostle are not to be taken as though man does not wish or does not run of his free will, but because the free will is not sufficient thereto unless it be moved and helped by God. Reply Objection 3. Free will is the cause of its own movement, because by his free will man moves himself to act, but it does not of necessity belong to liberty that what is free should be the first cause of itself, as neither for one thing to be caused of another need it be the first cause. God, therefore, is the first cause, who moves causes both natural and voluntary. And just as by moving natural causes, he does not prevent their acts being natural, so by moving voluntary causes, he does not deprive their actions of being voluntary, but rather is he the cause of this very thing in them, for he operates in each thing according to its own nature. Reply Objection 4. Quote, man's way, end quote, is said, quote, not to be his, end quote, in the execution of his choice, wherein he may be impaired, whether he will or not. The choice itself, however, is in us, but presupposes the help of God. Reply Objection 5. Quality in man is of two kinds, natural and adventitious. Now, the natural quality may be in the intellectual part, or in the body and its powers. From the very fact, therefore, 
that man is such by virtue of a natural quality which is in the intellectual part he naturally desires his last end which is happiness which desire indeed is a natural desire and is not subject to free will as is clear from what we have said above question eighty two articles one and two but on the part of the body and its powers man may be such by virtue of a natural quality inasmuch as he is of such a temperament or disposition due to any impression whatever produced by corporal causes which cannot affect the intellectual part since it is not the act of a corporal organ and such as a man is by virtue of a corporal quality such also does his end seem to him because from such a disposition a man is inclined to choose or reject something but these inclinations are subject to the judgment of reason which the lower appetite obeys as we have said question eighty one article three wherefore this is in no way prejudicial to free will the adventitious qualities are habits and passions by virtue of which a man is inclined to one thing rather than another and yet even these inclinations are subject to the judgment of reason such qualities too are subject to reason as it is in our power either to acquire them whether by causing them or disposing ourselves to them or to reject them and so there is nothing in this that is repugnant to free will second article first part question eighty three article two whether free will is a power objection one it would seem that free will is not a power for free will is nothing but a free judgment but judgment denominates an act not a power therefore free will is not a power objection two further free will is defined as quote, the faculty of the will and reason end quote. but faculty denominates a facility of power which is due to a habit therefore free will is a habit moreover bernard says on grace and free will one and two that free will is quote, the soul's habit of disposing of itself end quote. therefore it is not a power objection three further no natural power is forfeited through sin but free will is forfeited through sin for augustine says that quote, man by abusing free will loses both it and himself end quote. therefore free will is not a power on the contrary nothing but a power seemingly is the subject of a habit but free will is the subject of grace by the help of which it chooses what is good therefore free will is a power i answer that although free will open square bracket liberium arbitrium i e free judgment closed square bracket in its strict sense denotes an act in the common manner of speaking we call free will that which is the principle of the act by which man judges freely now in us the principle of an act is both power and habit for we say that we know something both by knowledge and by the intellectual power therefore free will must be either a power or a habit or a power with a habit that it is neither a habit nor a power together with a habit can be clearly proved in two ways first of all because if it is a habit it must be a natural habit for it is natural to man to have a free will but there is no natural habit in us with respect to those things which come under free will for we are naturally inclined to those things over which we have natural habits for instance to assent to first principles while those things to which we are naturally inclined are not subject to free will 
as we have said of the desire of happiness, question 82, articles 1 and 2, wherefore it is against the very notion of free will that it should be a natural habit, and that it should be a non-natural habit is against its nature. Therefore, in no sense is it a habit. Secondly, this is clear because habits are defined as that, quote, by reason of which we are well or ill disposed with regards to actions and passions, end quote, ethics, 2, 5. For by temperance we are well disposed as regards concupiscences, and by intemperance ill disposed, and by knowledge we are well disposed to the act of the intellect, when we know the truth, and by the contrary ill disposed. But the free will is indifferent to good and evil choice. Wherefore, it is impossible for free will to be a habit. Therefore, it is a power. Reply Objection 1. It is not unusual for a power to be named from its act, and so from this act, which is a free judgment, is named the power which is the principle of this act. Otherwise, if free will denominated an act, it would not always remain in man. Reply Objection 2. Faculty sometimes denominates a power ready for operation, and in this sense faculty is used in the definition of free will. But Bernard takes habit, not as divided against power, but as signifying a certain aptitude by which a man has some sort of relation to an act. And this may be both by power and by habit, for by a power man is, as it were, empowered to do the action, and by the habit he is apt to act well or ill. Reply Objection 3. Man is said to have lost free will by falling into sin, not as to natural liberty, which is freedom from coercion, but as regards freedom from fault and unhappiness. Of this we shall treat later in the treatise on morals in the second part of this work. First to second part. Question 85. Sequeled. Question 109. Third article. First part. Question 83. Article 3. Where the free will is an appetitive power. Objection 1. It would seem that free will is not an appetitive but a cognitive power. For Damascene, on the orthodox faith, 2.27, says that, quote, free will straightway accompanies the rational nature, end quote. But reason is a cognitive power. Therefore, free will is a cognitive power. Objection 2. Further, free will is so called as though it were a free judgment but to judge is an act of a cognitive power therefore free will is a cognitive power objection three further the principal function of free will is to choose but choice seems to belong to knowledge because it implies a certain comparison of one thing to another which belongs to the cognitive power therefore free will is a cognitive power on the contrary the philosopher says Ethics three three, that choice is quote, the desire of those things which are in us, end quote. but desire is an act of the appetitive power. Therefore, choice is also. But free will is that by which we choose. Therefore, free will is an appetitive power. I answer that the proper act of free will is choice. For we say we have a free will because we can take one thing while refusing another, and this is to choose. Therefore, we must consider the nature of free will by considering the nature of choice. Now two things concur in choice, one on the part of the cognitive power, the other on the part of the appetitive power. On the part of the cognitive power, counsel is required, by which we judge one thing to be preferred to another. 
and on the part of the appetitive power it is required that the appetite should accept the judgment of counsel. Therefore Aristotle, Ethics 6, 2, leaves it in doubt whether choice belongs principally to the appetitive or the cognitive power, since he says that choice is either, quote, an appetitive intellect or an intellectual appetite. End quote. But Ethics 3, 3, he inclines to its being an intellectual appetite when he describes choice as, quote, a desire proceeding from counsel, end quote. And the reason of this is because the proper object of choice is the means to the end, and this, as such, is in the nature of that good which is called useful. Wherefore, since good, as such, is the object of the appetite, it follows that the choice is principally an act of the appetitive power, and thus free will is an appetitive power. Reply Objection 1. The appetitive powers accompany the apprehensive, and in this sense Damascene says that free will straightway accompanies the rational power. Reply Objection 2. Judgment, as it were, concludes and terminates counsel. Now counsel is terminated, first, by the judgment of reason, secondly, by the acceptation of the appetite, whence the philosopher, Ethics 3.3, says that, quote, having formed a judgment by counsel, we desire in accordance with that counsel, end quote, and in this sense choice itself is a judgment from which free will takes its name. Reply Objection 3. This comparison which is implied in the choice belongs to the preceding counsel, which is an act of reason. For though the appetitive does not make comparisons, yet forasmuch as it is moved by the apprehensive power which does compare, it has some likeness of comparison by choosing one in preference to another. Fourth Article First Part Question 83 Article 4 Whether free will is a power distinct from the will? Objection 1 It would seem that the free will is a power distinct from the will. For Damascene says, on the Orthodox Faith 2.22, that thelesis is one thing and boelesis another but thelesis is the will, while boelesis seems to be the free will, because boelesis, according to him, is will as concerning an object by way of comparison between two things. Therefore it seems that the free will is a distinct power from the will. Objection 2. Further, powers are known by their acts. By choice, which is the act of free will, is distinct from the act of willing, because, quote, the act of the will regards the end, whereas choice regards the means to the end. end Ethics 3.2 Therefore, free will is a distinct power from the will. Objection 3. Further, the will is the intellectual appetite. But in the intellect there are two powers, the active and the passive. Therefore, also on the part of the intellectual appetite, there must be another power besides the will. And this, seemingly, can only be free will. Therefore, free will is a distinct power from the will. On the contrary, Damascene says, on the Orthodox faith, 3.14, free will is nothing else than the will. I answer that the appetitive powers must be proportionate to the apprehensive powers, as we have said above, question 64, article 2. Now, as on the part of the intellectual apprehension, we have intellect and reason, so on the part of the intellectual appetite we have will and free will, which is nothing else but the power of choice. And this is clear from their relations to their respective objects and acts. For the act of understanding implies the simple acceptation of something, 
whence we say that we understand first principles, which are known of themselves without any comparison. But to reason, properly speaking, is to come from one thing to the knowledge of another. Wherefore, properly speaking, we reason about conclusions, which are known from the principles. In like manner on the part of the appetite to will implies the simple appetite for something. Wherefore the will is said to regard the end, which is desired for itself. But to choose is to desire something for the sake of obtaining something else. Wherefore, properly speaking, it regards the means to the end. Now, in matters of knowledge, the principles are related to the conclusion to which we are sent on account of the principles, just as, in appetitive matters, the end is related to the means, which is desired on account of the end. Wherefore it is evident that as the intellect is to reason, so is the will to the power of choice, which is free will. But it has been shown above, question 79, article 8, that it belongs to the same power both to understand and to reason, even as it belongs to the same power to be at rest and to be in movement. Wherefore it belongs also to the same power to will and to choose, and on this account the will and free will are not two powers, but one. Reply Objection 1. Boulesis is distinct from Thelesis on account of a distinction not of powers, but of act. Reply Objection 2. Choice and will that is, the act of willing, are different acts, yet they belong to the same power, as also to understand and to reason, as we have said. Reply Objection 3. The intellect is compared to the will as moving the will, and therefore there is no need to distinguish in the will an active and passive will. End of Question 83. Recording by Christine G. in Oslo, Norway. The 26th of February, 2012. Question 84, Part 1. Summa Theologica Pars Prima on Man. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Summa Theologica Pars Prima on Man by St. Thomas Aquinas translated by the fathers of the english dominican province question eighty four article one whether the soul knows bodies through the intellect objection one it would seem that the soul does not know bodies through the intellect for augustine says soliloquies two four that bodies cannot be understood by the intellect nor indeed anything corporeal unless it can be perceived by the senses he also says in the literal meaning of genesis 12.24, that intellectual vision is one of those things that are in the soul by their essence. But such are not bodies. Therefore the soul cannot know bodies through the intellect. Objection 2. Further, as sense is to the intelligible, so is the intellect to the sensible. But the soul can by no means, through the senses, understand spiritual things which are intelligible. Therefore by no means can it, through the intellect, know bodies which are sensible. Objection 3. Further, the intellect is concerned with things that are necessary and unchangeable, but all bodies are mobile and changeable, therefore the soul cannot know bodies through the intellect. On the contrary, science is in the intellect. If therefore the intellect does not know bodies, it follows that there is no science of bodies, and thus perishes natural science which treats of mobile bodies. 
I answer that it should be said, in order to elucidate this question, that the early philosophers who inquired into the natures of things thought there was nothing in the world save bodies, and because they observed that all bodies are mobile, and considered them to be ever in a state of flux, they were of opinion that we can have no certain knowledge of the true nature of things, for what is in a continual state of flux cannot be grasped with any degree of certitude, for it passes away ere the mind can form a judgment thereon, according to the saying of Heraclitus, that it is not possible twice to touch a drop of water in a passing torrent, as the philosopher relates in Metaphysics 4 and Didacles 3.5. After these came Plato, who, wishing to save the certitude of our knowledge of truth through the intellect, maintained that, besides these things corporeal, there is another genus of beings, separate from matter and movement, which beings he called species and ideas, by participation of which each one of these singular and sensible things is said to be either a man or a horse or the like. Wherefore he said that sciences and definitions, and whatever appertains to the act of the intellect, are not referred to these sensible bodies, but to those beings immaterial and separate, so that according to this the soul does not understand these corporeal things, but the separate species thereof. Now, this may be shown to be false for two reasons. First, because since those species are immaterial and immovable, knowledge of movement and matter would be excluded from science, which knowledge is proper to natural science, and likewise all demonstration through moving and material causes. Secondly, since it seems ridiculous, when we seek for knowledge of things which are to us manifest, to introduce other beings which cannot be the substance of those others, since they differ from them essentially, so that granted that we can have a knowledge of those separate substances, we cannot for that reason claim to form a judgment concerning these sensible things. Now it seems that Plato strayed from the truth, because having observed that all knowledge takes place through some kind of similitude, he thought that the form of the thing known must necessarily be in the knower, in the same manner as the thing known. Then he observed that the form of the thing understood is in the intellect under conditions of universality, immateriality, and immobility, which is apparent from the very operation of the intellect, whose act of understanding has a universal extension, and is subject to a certain amount of necessity, for the mode of action corresponds to the mode of the agent's form. Wherefore he concluded that the things which we understand must have in themselves an essence under the same conditions of immateriality and immobility. But there is no necessity for this, for even in sensible things it is to be observed that the form is otherwise in one sensible than in another. For instance, whiteness may be of great intensity in one, and of a less intensity in another. In one we find whiteness with sweetness, in another without sweetness. In the same way the sensible form is conditioned differently in the thing which is extended to the soul, and in the senses which receive the forms of sensible things without receiving matter, such as the color of gold without receiving gold. So also the intellect, according to its own mode, receives under conditions of immateriality and immobility, the species of material and mobile bodies. For the received is in the receiver according to the mode of the receiver. We must conclude, therefore, that through the intellect the soul knows bodies by a knowledge which is immaterial, universal, and necessary. Reply to Objection 1. These words of Augustine are to be understood as referring to the medium of intellectual knowledge, and not to its object. 
for the intellect knows bodies by understanding them not indeed through bodies nor through material and corporeal species but through immaterial and intelligible species which can be in the soul by their own essence reply to objection two as augustine says in the city of god twenty two twenty nine it is not correct to say that as the sense follows only bodies so the intellect knows only spiritual things for it follows that god and the angels would not know corporeal things the reason of this diversity is that the lower power does not extend to those things that belong to the higher power whereas the higher power operates in a more excellent manner those things which belong to the lower power reply to objection three every movement presupposes something immovable for when a change of quality occurs the substance remains unmoved and when there is a change of substantial form matter remains unmoved moreover the various conditions of mutable things are themselves immovable for instance though socrates be not always sitting yet it is an immovable truth that whenever he does sit he remains in one place for this reason there is nothing to hinder our having an immovable science of movable things article two whether the soul understands corporeal things through its essence objection one it would seem that the soul understands corporeal things through its essence for augustine says on the trinity ten five that the soul collects and lays hold of the images of bodies which are formed in the soul and of the soul for in forming them it gives them something of its own substance but the soul understands bodies by images of bodies therefore the soul knows bodies through its essence which it employs for the formation of such images and from which it forms them objection to further the philosopher says in on the soul three eight that the soul after a fashion is everything since therefore like is known by like it seems that the soul knows corporeal things through itself objection three further the soul is superior to corporeal creatures now lower things are in higher things in a more eminent way than in themselves as dionysius says in on the heavenly hierarchy twelve therefore all corporeal creatures exist in a more excellent way in the soul than in themselves therefore the soul can know corporeal creatures through its essence on the contrary augustine says on the trinity nine three that the mind gathers knowledge of corporeal things through the bodily senses but the soul itself cannot be known through the bodily senses therefore it does not know corporeal things through itself I answer that the ancient philosophers held that the soul knows bodies through its essence for it was universally admitted that like is known by like but they thought that the form of the thing known is in the knower in the same mode as in the thing known the platonists however were of a contrary opinion for plato having observed that the intellectual soul has an immaterial nature and an immaterial mode of knowledge held that the forms of things known subsist immaterially while the earlier natural philosophers observing that things known are corporeal and material held that things known must exist materially even in the soul that knows them and therefore in order to ascribe into the soul a knowledge of all things they held that it has the same nature in common with all and because the nature of a result is determined by its principles they ascribed to the soul the nature of a principle so that those who thought fire to be the principle of all held that the soul had the nature of fire 
and in like manner as to air and water. Lastly, Empedocles, who held the existence of our four material elements in two principles of movement, is said that the soul was composed of these. Consequently, since they held that things exist in the soul materially, they maintained that all the soul's knowledge is material, thus failing to discern intellect from sense. But this opinion will not hold. First, because in the material principle of which they spoke, the various results do not exist save in potentiality. But a thing is not known according as it is in potentiality, but only according as it is in act, as is shown in Metaphysics 9, Didascally 8, 9. Wherefore, neither is a power known except through its act. It is therefore insufficient to ascribe to the soul the nature of the principles in order to explain the fact that it knows all, unless we further admit in the soul natures and forms of each individual result, for instance, of bone, flesh, and the like. Thus does Aristotle argue against Empedocles in On the Soul 1.5. Secondly, because if it were necessary for the thing known to exist materially in the knower, there would be no reason why things which have a material existence outside the soul should be devoid of knowledge. Why, for instance, if by fire the soul knows fire, that fire also which is outside the soul should not have knowledge of fire. We must conclude, therefore, that material things known must needs exist in the knower, not materially, but immaterially. The reason of this is because the act of knowledge extends to things outside the knower, for we know things even that are external to us. Now by matter the form of a thing is determined to some one thing. Wherefore it is clear that knowledge is an inverse ratio of materiality. And consequently, things that are not receptive of form, save materially, have no power of knowledge whatever, such as plants, as the philosopher says in On the Soul 2.12. But the more immaterially a thing receives a form of the thing known, the more perfect is its knowledge. Therefore, the intellect which abstracts the species not only from matter, but also from the individuating conditions of matter, has more perfect knowledge than the senses, which receive the form of the thing known without matter indeed, but subject to material conditions. Moreover, among the senses, sight has the most perfect knowledge, because it is the least material, as we have remarked above in question 78, article 3 while among intellects the more perfect is the more immaterial. It is therefore clear from the foregoing that if there be an intellect which knows all things by its essence, then its essence must needs have all things in itself immaterially. Thus the early philosophers held that the essence of the soul, that it may know all things, must be actually composed of the principles of all material things. Now this is proper to God, that his essence comprise all things immaterially as effects pre-exist virtually in their cause. God alone, therefore, understands all things through his essence, but neither the human soul nor the angels can do so. Reply to Objection 1. Augustine in that passage is speaking of an imaginary vision, which takes place through the image of bodies. To the formation of such images the soul gives part of its substance, just as a subject is given in order to be informed by some form. In this way the soul makes such images from itself, not that the soul or some part of the soul be turned into this or that image, but just as we say that a body is made into something colored because of its being informed with color. That this is the sense is clear from what follows, for he says that the soul keeps something, namely not informed with such image, 
which is able freely to judge of the species of these images, and that this is the mind or intellect. And he says that the part which is informed with these images, namely the imagination, is common to us and beasts. Reply to Objection 2. Aristotle did not hold that the soul is actually composed of all things, as did the earlier philosophers. He said that the soul is all things after a fashion, forasmuch as it is in potentiality to all, through the senses, to all things sensible, through the intellect, to all things intelligible. Reply to Objection 3. Every creature has a finite and determinate essence. Wherefore, although the essence of the higher creature has a certain likeness to the lower creature, forasmuch as they have something in common generically, yet it has not a complete likeness thereof, because it is determined to a certain species other than the species of the lower creature. But the divine essence is a perfect likeness of all. Whatsoever may be found to exist in things created, being the universal principle of all. Article 3 whether the soul understands all things through innate species. Objection 1. It would seem that the soul understands all things through innate species. For Gregory says in a homily for the Ascension, homily 39, Gospels, that a man has understanding in common with the angels. But angels understand all things through innate species. Wherefore, in the book On Causes, it is said that every intelligence is full of forms. Therefore the soul also has innate species of things, by means of which it understands corporeal things. Objection 2. Further, the intellectual soul is more excellent than corporeal primary matter. But primary matter was created by God under the forms to which it has potentiality. Therefore, much more is the intellectual soul created by God under intelligible species. And so the soul understands corporeal things through innate species. Objection 3. Further, no one can answer the truth except concerning what he knows. But even a person untaught and devoid of acquired knowledge answers the truth to every question if put to him in orderly fashion, as we find related in the Meno, five and following, of Plato, concerning a certain individual. Therefore, we have some knowledge of things even before we acquire knowledge, which would not be the case unless we had innate species. Therefore, the soul understands corporeal things through innate species. On the contrary, the philosopher, speaking of the intellect, says, in On the Soul, 3, 4, that it is like a tablet on which nothing is written. I answer that, since form is the principle of action, a thing must be related to the form which is the principle of an action, as it is to that action. For instance, if upward motion is from lightness, then that which only potentially moves upward must needs be only potentially light, but that which actually moves upward must needs be actually light. Now we observe that man sometimes is only a potential knower, both as to sense and as to intellect, and he is reduced from such potentiality to act, through the action of sensible objects on his senses, and to the act of sensation, by instruction or discovery, to the act of understanding. Wherefore, we must say that the cognitive soul is in potentiality both to the images which are the principles of sensing, and to those which are the principles of understanding. For this reason Aristotle, in On the Soul 3.4, held that the intellect by which the soul understands has no innate species, but is at first in potentiality to all such species. But since that which has a form actually is sometimes unable to act according to that form on account of some hindrance, 
as a light thing may be hindered from moving upwards for this reason did plato hold that naturally man's intellect is filled with all intelligible species but that by being united to the body it is hindered from the realization of its act but this seems to be unreasonable first because if the soul has a natural knowledge of all things it seems impossible for the soul so far to forget the existence of such knowledge as not to know itself to be possessed thereof for no man forgets what he knows naturally that for instance the whole is larger than the part and such like and especially unreasonable does this seem if we suppose that it is natural to the soul to be united to the body as we have established above in question seventy six article one for it is unreasonable that the natural operation of the thing be totally hindered by that which belongs to it naturally secondly the falseness of this operation is clearly proved from the fact that if a sense be wanting the knowledge of what is apprehended through that sense is wanting also for instance a man who is born blind can have no knowledge of colors this would be the case if the soul had innate images of all intelligible things we must therefore conclude that the soul does not know corporeal things through innate species reply to objection one man indeed has intelligence in common with the angels but not in the same degree of perfection just as the lower grades of bodies which merely exist according to gregory homily on ascension twenty four in the gospels has not the same degree of perfection as the higher bodies for the matter of the lower bodies is not totally completed by its form but is in potentiality to forms which it has not whereas the matter of heavenly bodies is totally completed by its form so that it is not in potentiality to any other form as we have said above in question sixty six article two in the same way the angelic intellect is perfected by intelligible species in accordance with its nature whereas the human intellect is in potentiality to such species reply to objection two primary matter has substantial being through its form consequently it had need to be created under some form else it would not be in act but once it exists under one form it is in potentiality to others on the other hand the intellect does not receive substantial being through the intelligible species and therefore there is no comparison reply to objection three if questions be put in an orderly fashion they proceed from universal self-evident principles to what is particular now by such a process knowledge is produced in the mind of the learner wherefore when he answers the truth to a subsequent question this is not because he had knowledge previously but because he thus learns for the first time for it matters not whether the teacher proceed from universal principles to conclusions by questioning or by asserting for in either case the mind of the listener is assured of what follows by that which preceded article four whether the intelligible species are derived by the soul from certain separate forms objection one it would seem that the intelligible species are derived by the soul from some separate forms for whatever is such by participation is caused by what is such essentially for instance that which is on fire is reduced to fire as the cause thereof but the intellectual soul for as much as it is actually understanding participates the thing understood for in a way the intellect in act is the thing understood in act therefore what in itself and in its essence is understood in act is the cause that the intellectual soul actually understands now that which in its essence is actually understood is a form existing without matter therefore the intelligible species by which the soul understands are caused by some separate forms objection to 
Further, the intelligible is to the intellect as the sensible is to the sense. But the sensible species which are in the senses, and by which we sense, are caused by the sensible object which exists actually outside the soul. Therefore the intelligible species by which our intellect understands are caused by some things actually intelligible, existing outside the soul. But these can be nothing else than forms separate from matter. Therefore the intelligible forms of our intellect are derived from some separate substances. Objection 3. Further, whatever is in potentiality is reduced to act by something actual. If, therefore, our intellect, previously in potentiality, afterwards actually understands, this must needs be caused by some intellect which is always in act, but this is a separate intellect. Therefore, the intelligible species by which we actually understand are caused by some separate substances. On the contrary, if this were true, we should not need the senses in order to understand. And this is proved to be false, especially from the fact that if a man be wanting in a sense, he cannot have any knowledge of the sensibles corresponding to that sense. I answer that, some have held that the intelligible species of our intellect are derived from certain separate forms or substances, and this in two ways. For Plato, as we have said in Article I, held that the forms of sensible things subsist by themselves without matter. For instance, the form of a man, which he called per se man, and form or idea of a horse, which is called per se horse, and so forth. He said, therefore, that these forms are participated both by our soul and by corporeal matter, by our soul to the effect of knowledge thereof, and by corporeal matter to the effect of existence. So that, just as corporeal matter by participating the idea of a stone becomes an individuating stone, so our intellect, by participating the idea of a stone, is made to understand a stone. Now participation of an idea takes place by some image of the idea in the participator, just as a model is participated by a copy. So just as he held that the sensible forms, which are in corporeal matter, are derived from the ideas as certain images thereof, so he held that the intelligible species of our intellect are images of the ideas derived therefrom. And for this reason, as we have said above in Article I, he referred sciences and definitions to those ideas. But since it is contrary to the nature of sensible things that their form should subsist without matter, as Aristotle proves in many ways in Metaphysics VI, Avicenna in On the Soul V, setting this opinion aside, held that the intelligible species of all sensible things, instead of subsisting in themselves without matter, pre-exist immaterially in the separate intellects, from the first of which, said he, such species are derived by a second, and so on to the last separate intellect, which he called the active intelligence, from which according to him intelligible species flow into our souls, and sensible species into corporeal matter. And so Avicenna agrees with Plato in this, that the intelligible species of our intellect are derived from certain separate forms. But these Plato held to subsist of themselves, while Avicenna placed them in the active intelligence. They differ too in this respect, that Avicenna held that the intelligible species do not remain in our intellect after it has ceased actually to understand, and that it needs to turn to the active intellect in order to receive them anew. Consequently, he does not hold that the soul has innate knowledge, as Plato, who held that the participated ideas remain immovably in the soul. But in this opinion, no sufficient reason can be assigned for the soul being united to the body. For it cannot be said that the intellectual soul is united to the body for the sake of the body, for neither is form for the sake of matter, nor is the mover for the sake of the moved, but rather the reverse. 
especially does the body seem necessary to the intellectual soul for the latter's proper operation which is to understand since as to its being the soul does not depend on the body but if the soul by its very nature had an inborn aptitude for receiving intelligible species through the influence of only certain separate principles and were not to receive them from the senses it would not need the body in order to understand wherefore to no purpose would it be united to the body but if it be said that our soul needs the senses in order to understand through being in some way awakened by them to the consideration of those things the intelligible species of which it receives from the separate principles even this seems an insufficient explanation for this awakening does not seem necessary to the soul except in so far as it is overcome by sluggishness as the platonists expressed it and by forgetfulness through its union with the body and thus the senses would be of no use to the intellectual soul except for the purpose of removing the obstacle which the soul encounters through its union with the body consequently the reason of the union of the soul with the body still remains to be sought and if it be said with avicenna that the senses are necessary to the soul because by them it is aroused to turn to the active intelligence from which it receives the species neither is this a sufficient explanation because if it is natural for the soul to understand through species derived from the active intelligence it follows that at times the soul of an individual wanting in one of the senses it can turn to the active intelligence either from the inclination of its very nature or through being roused by another sense to the effect of receiving the intelligible species of which the corresponding sensible species are wanting and thus a man born blind could have knowledge of colors which is clearly untrue we must therefore conclude that the intelligible species by which our soul understands are not derived from separate forms reply to objection one the intelligible species which are participated by our intellect are reduced as to their first cause to a first principle which is by its essence intelligible namely god but they proceed from that principle by means of the sensible forms and material things from which we gather knowledge as dionysius says in the divine name seven reply to objection to material things as to the being which they have outside the soul may be actually sensible but not actually intelligible wherefore there is no comparison between sense and intellect reply to objection three our passive intellect is reduced from potentiality to act by some being in act that is by the active intellect which is a power of the soul as we have said in question seventy nine article four and not by a separate intelligence as proximate cause although perchance as remote cause end of question eighty four part one